You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. continue standing and look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just reflect on those words that we just sung, Lord, that you are holy, you are great, Lord, you are perfect, you are pure in all of your ways. And Lord, we give you glory right now. We just take this moment, Lord, just to focus our hearts on you, to focus our minds on you, Lord, how great you are, O God. There is no one like you in all of creation, Lord. You spoke, and everything that we can see, and so much that we can't see, you created by the word of your power, Lord. You are truly glorious and great and awesome, and Lord, we give you the praise right now. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we open up your word, uh, we pray that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, Lord that you would even move in our hearts, Lord, and shift the things that need to be shifted, the things that just aren't in line with your character of holiness and your character of greatness and purity, Lord, and that you would degree by degree mold us and transform us to make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, that is our desire here today, and Lord, we admit uh, that apart from you, apart from your grace, apart from your spirit working in our lives, we can't do that on our own. But Lord, would you help us to even open our hearts to submit to you today, to look to you today? Would you lead us all for your name and all for your glory? Amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat this morning. I'm so glad that you are here with us today. Um, As we jump into the book of Malachi, uh, the last of the minor prophets. And so if you have been uh, with us, you know that we've been tracking over the summer through the minor prophets one at a time. And uh, we have heard a lot of good messages, a lot of messages that maybe are hard to hear, but messages that are really good to hear. Things that you maybe wouldn't hear every Sunday in church unless you were in the minor prophets. And uh, today uh, we're going to be in Malachi Uh, the book of Malachi. So easy to get to Malachi. Just go to the book of Matthew, turn back one, and you're there. You found it, okay? So really easy. Malachi, a fairly short book, uh, four chapters in total, but Malachi comes with a big message. And ultimately, this is the Lord's last word in the Old Testament. It's the Lord's last word for two reasons. One, it's the last book in the Old Testament, so that's obvious. Um, But secondly, The book of Malachi is actually made up of a series of disputes between God and his people. Did you catch that? The book of Malachi is made up of a series of arguments between God and his people. Who would argue with the Lord? Well, the people in Malachi's day decided that they would argue with the Lord. And there are six disputes, six arguments in the book of Malachi. But before we dive right into the text, let me just take a couple minutes and kind of set this up for you so you can place where you're at and where this book takes place. And so the book of Malachi takes place, it's written about 400 years before our Lord and Savior Jesus walked the earth. 
Uh, it's written 100 years after the people of Judah had returned from the Babylonian captivity. So they're in captivity. They return to the land. The remnant of the people return to the land. Uh, the temple is rebuilt. The city is rebuilt to a certain degree. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. Uh, Nehemiah is ruling as the governor. Ezra is there um, in charge of the priests and the Levites. And Malachi is writing in this time frame. Um, most commentators think that Malachi actually wrote his book and did the bulk of his ministry while Nehemiah was returned to Babylon for a short period of time. And at this point in the history, as far as externals go, in the nation of Israel at that time, things look pretty decent. The people are outwardly religious. Uh, there is um, there is sacrifices happening at the temple. The temple is rebuilt. There's no idols set up in the temple at this time. But in reality, what we see in the book of Malachi is that though everything looks okay on the outside, there's a very different story on the inside of the hearts of God's people. And as we unpack this today, we're going to see that the people of Israel are actually probably in a worse place than even what they were before they went into captivity. At best, nothing had really changed while they were in captivity. When the people of Israel came back from captivity, there seemed to be this spark of enthusiasm, this spark of encouragement, this spark of desire for the Lord, but only 100 years in, it starts to fade. Things start to fall apart. And really what we see in the book of Malachi is we see six disputes, six arguments between the Lord and His people. And all that we're going to do today, instead of just trying to come up with a three-point sermon, I don't know how you do that with kind of six main points. Um, instead of doing that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these, these six disputes between God and His people, and we're going to draw out one point of application for our own hearts. Because we don't want to get to the place ever where the people we're at in the book of Malachi. We don't want to get to a place of complacency. We don't want to get to a place of hard-heartedness before the Lord, even if it is subtly by degrees. Um, I really tend to believe that the people of Israel didn't just wake up one morning and were completely complacent. I think it happened by degrees, even as it would in our lives. And so if you're with me in the book of Malachi, hopefully you're, you're there. We're just going to go through the book of Malachi. And if the book of Malachi communicates one thing to us. If it communicates one thing to us, it communicates that things can look good on the outside without actually being good on the inside. And if it communicates one thing about the Lord above everything else, it communicates to us that the Lord is who he says he is, that he is holy, that he is pure. Over and over again in the book of Malachi, we, re we hear the Lord being called the Lord of hosts, which is a title that's really meant to capture the greatness of who God is, the grandeur of who God is, his majesty and his awe, that he is worthy of respect. And over and over again, we hear the Lord saying to the people of Israel, my name will be great among the nations. 
And that is what the Lord wants us to know today, that the Lord is worthy of all of our respect. He is not just worthy of our external shows of obedience, our religious efforts. He wants our hearts on the deepest level. He wants all of our devotion. Why? Because he alone is fully worthy in every single way. And God goes to the heart in the book of Malachi, and he pulls out all of the inconsistency thread by thread, and the whole system of religious worship in Malachi's day just unravels and falls flat. And so this morning, as we look at that, it's going to be really easy for us to point the finger at them and say, wow, those boneheads, I can't believe how off they were, without actually turning the mirror and looking at ourselves and saying, do I do that? Am I like that? Do I even have a little bit of hard-heartedness towards the Lord in some areas? And so this morning, more than I want to invite you to look out at them, I want to invite you, I want to look in at me, my heart before the Lord, because that's what the Lord's most concerned with, isn't he? He's not concerned as much with our religious show as he is with our own hearts and how they are before him. And so let's jump right into it. Uh, this morning, this morning, we're going to have six uh, heart resolutions that lead us away from complacency and to a place of spiritual health. Six heart resolutions. Um, now, as we get into the book of Malachi right here, the first dispute that we see is right there at the beginning of chapter one. And this dispute, uh, in this dispute, the people, get this, the people accuse God of not loving them. Imagine that, okay? They accuse God who led them through captivity, brought them into the promised land, and even in their disobedience then brought them back into the promised land. They accuse God of not loving them. That's hard to believe, but I want you to see it. It's right here in chapter 1. Take a look at verse 2. The Lord says to the people, I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, you got to get the, you got to get the the sarcasm and the the tone of, of this message. The Lord says, I've loved you to the people. But you say, how have you loved us? Just notice the scoffing even that's right there in the text. This becomes evident as you read the book. And then the Lord says, is not Jacob or is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. The Lord starts with this simple statement that should be clear to each and every single person, that the Lord loves his people, and the people shoot back right away. How have you loved us? You haven't loved us. Now, where's this coming from? How could the people even think this? Well, the people come back into the land. Things are going moderately well, but it's a battle. It's a struggle. The crops are not doing as well as they should be. Um, The crops are struggling. Um, Enemies are troubling. Um, difficulty is bubbling over, and the people start grumbling. And they start grumbling against the Lord. Well, as the people had come back into the land, they had heard the prophecies of Ezekiel. Ezekiel prophesied and he promised that there would be a new and glorious temple in the land. And while the temple that was rebuilt wasn't quite as glorious as what the people had maybe hoped. Um, Haggai promised uh, that the treasures of the nations would flow into Jerusalem, yet they were struggling with poverty even to a certain degree. Isaiah 
had promised that there would be a great king who would come and sit on the throne of David. And yet, they were still being ruled by a Babylonian governor. Many of the prophets had prophesied that God would destroy their enemies, but their enemies were pressing in on them bit by bit. All of these things together caused the people to start to become disillusioned. Where is Where's the God who promised all of these things? Why is He not doing these things? And they start to question God's love for them. They start to question, God, if you really did love us, wouldn't you be blessing us a whole lot more than you are right now? Well, that's a good question, except they didn't look at their own lives. They didn't look at their own lives to see that their lives were far out of line, far disobedient towards the Lord. And the reason that God wasn't blessing them in the land was because they were not walking closely with Him. They were putting on an external show, but they were not giving their hearts to Him the way that He had called them to. And so bit by bit, bit by bit, they slide away into complacency. They drift away from the Lord bit by bit instead of drawing closer to the Lord. And instead of taking a hard look at their own lives, they begin to cast a shadow on God's faithfulness and God's love. Let me just ask a question here. Maybe in your life, maybe in the last while, it's just been a hard, hard season. Hard seasons, they stink, they're hard. They don't mean that God doesn't love you. God still loves you through those seasons. God's love for you is unchanged in the hard seasons, and He wants to be a rock for you. He wants to carry you through those seasons. He wants you to grow in leaning on Him, grow in dependence, grow in a love for Him, grow in a resolve to follow Him, even though this life will be very difficult at times. But the people of Israel shifted in a different direction, and they began to discredit the Lord. And point number one, we see it right up there on the screen. By God's grace, may may we land here. By God's grace, may we resolve to never doubt His love for you and me. When hard times come, when difficult seasons come, don't doubt God's love for you. Difficulty in this life is not an indicator of whether God loves you or not. Do you understand that? Okay? Just simply go to the New Testament. Read what Jesus says about what life will be like for believers in this world. He does not promise continual blessing and continual ease in that sense. He promises difficulty. But he promises that he will be there for us, that he will walk with us, that he will carry us through it, and that we will see his faithfulness in greater ways through the difficult times than we will through the easy peasy times in life. So that's what we need to know. We don't want to drift towards thinking that God doesn't love us in the way that he has said. He is faithful. I just want to encourage you with this. If you're walking through a difficult season right now, take time, take time even today to remember God's faithfulness to you in the past. Remember God's goodness to you in the past. And then take what you remember, maybe go back through some old journals or something where you've written things down about how God's been at work in your life, how he's been faithful, how he's been good to you. Go through those things and use that to kindle your hope in him for the future. And pray, Lord, would you help me? Would you fill me with hope? Would you fill me with, with greater love for you, greater trust for you as we look towards the future? 
Well, that is dispute number one. Dispute number one, the people of Israel accuse God of not loving them. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, it wasn't that God didn't love his people. The problem was that his people didn't really love him. They loved his blessings, but they didn't love the God of the blessing. May we never fall into that place. And dispute number two comes right up in chapter one as well. It follows right hot on the heels of dispute number one. Uh, Dispute number two is found in verses six through 11. And uh, right here, um, the the people, um, or God actually points out the people's complacency in worship and the impurity in their worship. So the people accuse God of not loving them, and God says, well, hold on a second here. Let's take a look at how much you love me. Now, notice what it says right here. Take a look at verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor, says the Lord? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name, but you say... How have we despised your name? Here it is. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table is to be despised. Notice this. Notice what the people are doing. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals, lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor, and will he show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. Great question. And now entreat the favor of God and he may be gracious to us with such gifts from your hands or will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, get this, this is intense. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts and I will not accept any offering from your hand. But from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Did you catch that? Did you catch what the Lord just said right there? Can you believe that? Can you believe that the Lord would even say to the people in that day that there would be one person who would just shut the doors of the temple so that they would stop bringing in their offerings? How, how could the Lord even say that to his people? Well, notice what the people were doing. The people in the day, they were bringing sickly sacrifices. Now, this wasn't simply because they didn't have anything better. They actually, it says right in the book that they actually had better sacrifices that they could have bring, could have brought to the Lord. But instead, they said, nah, 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 I'll keep that for me or I'll keep that for whatever I want. The Lord will be fine if I just, you know, bring him this wounded animal or this sick animal. Well, the Levitical law was very, very clear about this, wasn't it? In the Levitical law, they were told that every sacrifice had to be without blemish. It couldn't be lame, it couldn't be blind, it couldn't be sickly in any way. It had to be pure. Why? Because that was a sign of purity. We want to offer what is pure to the Lord. And the people of Israel were saying, "Ah, God's not that worked up about it. He'll take whatever I have left over. It's not that big of a deal. And the people were complacent in worship. They were fine with impurity in their worship. They were okay with this. Well, here's the second thing. 
Here's the second resolution that we want to make. The second resolution right here, by God's grace, we want to resolve to avoid being complacent in our worship. So let me just ask you a few heart questions right now. When you come, when you come to worship the Lord on Sunday morning, does it stir your heart? Does it bother you if it doesn't stir your heart? As you hear the songs being sung, as you hear the the Word of God, are you thinking about, man, what is for lunch? I can't wait to get out of here. Or are you allowing God to go to work on your heart to even to, to take away the things that shouldn't be there and to refine the things that should be there and to grow you in His grace? Or are you just zoning out and tuning out? Listen, if, if you're tuning out, that's complacency. That's complacency in worship. That's like, just like bringing a lame sacrifice in the Old Testament and saying, ah, here you go, God. This will be good enough for you. What are, you, what are you saying in that? You're saying, God, you're really not worthy of my best. You're not worthy of my attention. You're not worthy of my focus. You're not worthy of my heart and everything. All that you're really worthy of is my lip service and my outward show. It's not acceptable. That's complacency in worship. And I'm not saying here that um, every single time that we come together to worship, you know, you need to be in a place of just like, ah, through the moon, hands in the, in the sky. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that your heart should be stirred. Even in the dark times, even in the hard times, there should be a depth of humility and honor in your heart for the Lord. There should be a desire for the name of God to be respected when we gather together in your life of worship as you serve the Lord, as you walk with him, there should be a desire for Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, that your life would be like a living sacrifice to the Lord, that he would be honored through your actions every single day in all the things that you do, that you would be intentional about bringing your very best to the Lord. Listen, complacency sets in one step at a time. It doesn't happen all at once. It's one step at a time. May we not drift down that road of giving God leftovers and being okay with it. May we not land there. Not at all. And if that's where you're at right now, today's a great day to repent. Today's a great day just to say, Lord, things have just not been where they should be in my heart right now. I'm far too comfortable with being completely complacent in worship. I'm far too comfortable about being lackadaisical in my own quiet time, in my own seeking of you. I'm I'm way too comfortable, God, to be just nonchalant and to treat you like you deserve the leftovers. Let's not get there. And if we are there, hear the voice of the Lord calling you back away from that place, back to a place of, of a zeal for him, a desire to exalt him above everything else. Well, that's dispute number two. Dispute number three comes right here in chapter two. In chapter two, we see dispute number three. And this is a dispute um, about the, the Jewish men divorcing their wives in order to marry up with foreign women who actually were engaged in idolatry, and so they would divorce their Jewish wives, the wife of their youth, in order to marry a foreign woman who was actually an idolater and would bring idolatry into their home. Here it is right here in chapter 2, starting at verse 13. It says this, and this second thing you do, 
You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she was your companion and, your, and the wife of your covenant, did he not make them one with the portion of the spirit of their union? And what was the one God seeking? The wording there is a little bit awkward on that, but what did the Lord want is really the gist of it. And the answer is godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless towards the wife of your youth. Get this, get this, guys, especially for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her and says, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Did you get that? The man who intentionally divorces his wife, the man who pushes his wife away from him, it's like violence before the Lord. It's that wrong. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So this is the picture right here. The people of Israel, they're back in the land. Things are going kind of okay, but not so great. And they start to see, you know, these foreign women and they, all of a sudden, they're like, man, you know, well, my wife's kind of getting old. I'm kind of done with her. I'm, I think I'm going to marry her instead. And I can just go ahead and do that. And they just did that. And God says, no way. That is not okay at all. Listen, may the Lord help each one of us by his grace to resolve to resolve to honoring our vows and commitments. Listen, many of us who are married here today, many of us who are married here today, well, all of us who are married here today, we took vows on our wedding day, didn't we? Just think back to those vows uh, that you said on your wedding day. Can you remember them? If you can't remember them, it'd be a great time to go back and to even look at what those vows were because how can you live up to something if you don't know what it was, right? Um, but are you honoring those vows right now? Are you honoring your vows and commitments before the Lord? Husbands, I just want to speak to you right now very precisely. This text is directed right at you. Are you honoring your vows to your wife? I'm not saying are you perfect in it. I'm saying is that your goal? Are you seeking to love your wife the way that you committed to on your wedding day? If you are not, if you're not, then you are actually driving a wedge in your relationship with the Lord. Do you understand that? This is not just between you and your spouse. Okay, this is between you and the Lord. Wives, same thing. Are you seeking to love your husband and honor your husband the way that you said on your wedding day? If not, then you're driving a relationship between yourself and the Lord. Notice what it says right here. Just, just take a look at this passage right here. It says that God has this thing against them, that they do not honor the vows that they made to the wife of their youth. They don't honor the marriage covenant that they made before God. This is a big deal to God. You know, Peter actually talks about this. And he says um, that husbands, you should love your wives. You should honor your wives. You should live with understanding with your wife so that your prayers will not be hindered. How, you know, if you don't live with understanding towards your wife, how does that hinder your prayers? Because it drives a wedge in your relationship with the Lord. It's crazy to think 
that as a husband or as a wife, that you can have this awesome relationship with the Lord and yet have turmoil in your relationship with your spouse. It doesn't add up. It doesn't work at all. And we should hear what the Lord says to us on this today, that we should honor our vows and commitments. Here, I think, you know, with point three, we can draw a connection between all of our vows and commitments, that God takes every commitment that we make very seriously. In fact, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, meaning if you say you're going to do it, you better do it. If you say you're not going to do it, you better not do it. And we should honor our commitments and our vows in that way. We can draw that application, but the most precise application right here in this passage that the Lord wants us to hear loud and clear is our relationship with our spouse. Are we honoring Him in it? If we're not honoring Him in it, it's going to cause turmoil in our relationship with the Lord. That's the third dispute in the book. Um, We're moving right along. Let's move to the fourth dispute, and the fourth one gets pretty intense. The fourth dispute we see here in chapter 2 as well. And in chapter 2, the people... Believe it or not, the people actually accuse God of being unholy. Just think about that for a second. The people so far have accused God of being unloving towards them. Now they accuse him of being unholy right here in chapter 2, verse 17 through the beginning of chapter 3. Notice what Malachi says here. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying... Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? We're like, well, how does that, how are they accusing God of unholiness here? Just take a look at it for a second. The people are saying, anyone who does evil, they're good in God's sight. You know, God's not that concerned about what's right and what's wrong. This is what the people are saying. You know, God's not that worked up about it. He's pretty chill about these things, and it's not a big deal. He'll just let it go, right? And, you know, if somebody does evil, they're good to go in God's sight. It's not a big deal. That's what the people are saying. And then, at the same time as they're saying that, okay, get their inconsistency here. At the same time as they're saying, you know, evil's not a big deal in in God's sight, they're saying, where's the God of justice? Why is he not showing us justice right now as our enemies are starting to press in on us, as we are not getting enough food? Isn't that crazy? Aren't we like that sometimes? God's okay with sin in my life. It's not that big of a deal. But he's not okay with sin in your life. And when your sin presses in hard on me and you sin against me, where's the God of justice? Why is he not showing you justice? Don't we always want justice for somebody else? but mercy for ourselves? (laughs) Right, we do. I know often I do. And this is the inconsistency of of the people. This is their hard heart coming through. I want you to see how the Lord responds to this at the beginning of chapter three. The Lord says, oh yeah, I'm not concerned about justice. I'm not concerned about what is right and what is wrong. Look at the beginning of chapter three. 
God says, I'll show you just how concerned I am. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of my covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? You guys want justice? Oh, he's coming with justice, he says. For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. That's a picture right there. That's a picture of John the Baptist, okay? We'll talk more about that at the end, but that's a picture of John the Baptist first right there. Behold my, send, my messenger to prepare the way for me, and then the Lord will come into his temple. That's a picture of Jesus Christ and him coming in all of his holiness and all of his pureness, coming as the ultimate sacrifice, but it's a picture, we see this a lot in the minor prophets where the first coming of Christ and the second coming is kind of all bundled together in one, and it also pictures His coming in judgment at the end of times. The Lord says, you think I'm not concerned about justice? You think I'm not concerned about what is right and wrong? You think that I am perverting justice? Just wait. Just wait and see. In fact, the Lord is not doing any of those things. It's not that He's unconcerned about justice in our world today, in case you thought he was. He's very concerned about it. But what is he doing today? He's showing mercy. He's showing grace. He's giving an opportunity for people to come to repentance. Okay, he's giving the opportunity for people to turn away from evil in our world today and to turn to Jesus Christ and to embrace him in faith and to receive his grace and mercy. The Lord is not unconcerned with justice he is showing grace so that people will turn and receive his mercy before he comes in justice. I can't believe this. People actually accuse God of being unholy. Have we ever done that? Have we ever been there? Probably we've never said, God, you're unholy in that way. But have you ever been in a place where you've cast shadow on God's character? Because he, he's not being, um, he's not acting and he's not um, bringing about justice as quickly as you would want it. That's been a temptation for me in my life. For sure, I can say that. And I can look back and I can see, whoa, 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 who am I? Who am I to judge the Lord? Who am I to give God a timeline for when he needs to do what he, what I think he should do? Who am I to think that somebody else would deserve justice, yet I should deserve mercy. Where does that come from? It comes from pride, doesn't it? It comes from a heart of pride. That's exactly where it comes from. That's exactly the heart that we see here in this people. And if you felt that in your heart, today's a great day to just confess that to the Lord, to get it before the Lord, and to pray, Lord, help me just to trust. Help me to trust, Lord, that you are working even when I don't see it. Help me to trust Lord, that you are truly concerned with all of the evils of this world and that you are working behind the scenes, that you are bringing people to repentance, that you are stirring hearts to turn back towards you. Lord, help me to trust in your timing. Well, listen, the, the dispute gets intense at this point. It gets right to the point here in chapter 3, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, and dispute number 5, dispute number 5 here, um, God accuses the people then, 
They've accused him of not loving and they've accused him of not being holy in his, in his actions and his ways. But God accuses the people very clearly of robbing him. He, he calls it right out and he says, you've been robbing me. You've been stealing from me. You've been withholding what is rightfully mine. I want you to notice this. The words in Malachi are, are intense. Notice what this says. Okay, verse 6 of chapter 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's a gem in the book. You should underline that one. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. Why does the Lord show us mercy continually? Because he does not change. He shows us the mercy and the grace that we do not deserve. Even this people that were so hard-hearted, he shows them grace and mercy in this day. God says, if, if, if I changed, in my attitude towards you, you'd be consumed like that, he says to these people. But be thankful that I don't change. Notice this verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from the statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You want my blessing and you want my favor? Then come back to me with all of your heart, he says. But you say, how shall we return? As if to say, we haven't gone anywhere. We haven't done anything wrong. We don't need to return. We don't need to repent. And then notice verse 8. Will man rob God? Great question. Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, he says. But bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is need for no more, and I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that you will not, or so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and the vine of your field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Just take a look at this with me for a second. One sense, in one sense, it's impossible to rob God, isn't it? He owns everything. Yet, in the bigger sense, it is very possible for each one of us to rob God. I just want you to, you know, look around. Do an do a inventory right now. Pull out, pull out of your pocket. Pull out of your, you know, keep your mask on, but pull out your wallet. Pull out your cell phone. Pull out all of these different things just into your lap right now. Just pull them out. Go ahead. Okay? Little interaction. Okay? You guys are getting them out. I see digging. That's good. Okay? Everything that you've got that is worth anything. Keep your masks on and all the rest of your clothes on too. Okay? All right, good. Um, but pull out, your, pull out your stuff and just put it there on your lap. How much of that belongs to you? How much of that is truly yours? This much. Zero percent of it. Everything that you hold right there is a gift from God that you have been entrusted with as his steward. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. And when we withhold the things that God has given to us from his service, from using them to honor him, we rob God, plain and simple. And that's exactly what the people of, of this book of Malachi were doing. They were robbing God. They were taking the things that God had given them by their grace, and they were saying, nope, 
I'm hanging on to this. They had sticky hands is what they had. God flowed the blessing in, and the blessing stuck, and they cling to it. And you know what God did? He said, forget it. I'm cutting off the flow. It's not flowing in anymore. If it's going to stick to your hands, it's not going to flow in. I can't remember who said it, but someone said that the Lord will allow a lot of resources to pass through our hands if we are generous. But the moment that they start to stick, God will shut off the flow. That's a paraphrase. That stuck with me. It hasn't stuck with me as hard as it should have stuck with me, but, uh, you know, I've got to grow in this area as well. But, but the Lord calls out this people and He says, you guys are robbing me. You're robbing me. I am giving you good things. Maybe not as much as you would want. Maybe not, you know, so that it's all overflowing. But the reason it's not overflowing is because you're choosing to hang on to it all. You're choosing to cling to it all as if it's yours. It's not yours. You're stewards. Do you understand that not just your stuff that you held in your hands, your body, your life, it's a stewardship. You're like, I belong to me. No, you don't. You belong to God. Your life is a stewardship for one reason on this earth. You are put here to bring honor and glory to God. That is why you are here on this earth. You're put here to bring honor and glory to Him, to love others well, and to serve Him with your life. That's why He's given you life. Now, we can choose, if we want to, to waste our life, can't we? We can choose to waste our life by spending it all on us, by using it for our own desires and pleasures. And guess what? At the end of that life, it'll be a waste and we will be disappointed. Or we can choose to take our resources, to take what we have, and to honor the Lord with it. And the Lord is very, very precise right here. Don't miss what He says. He calls to this people, and He says to them, listen, He says, you're robbing me. He says, bring in the full tithe. A tithe is just a word that means 10%. It means 10% here in this passage. Um, the tithes in the Old Testament were to support the Levites. The Levites lived off of the tithes of the people. They were involved in the service of God. That's all that they did. They didn't have side businesses, okay? They just made their income through serving the Lord in the temple. And it was also to be used for the upkeep of the temple so that God's people would have a place to worship. He says, bring in the full tithe. Bring in the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Well, who's the food for? Is it for God to eat? No, he's not saying that. It's for his servants to eat so that he would be honored and so that the service would be kept up. And then notice what it says. Get this, okay? Verse 10, halfway through it. I want you to see this. Underline this in your Bible because this is massive. Most of us maybe don't think of it this way. God says, bring in the whole tithe, bring in all of the offering, bring in a generous offering into the storehouse. And he says, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. God is calling you, he's calling me to test him. How many times in the Bible does God call us to test him? I don't know, I think every other time it's kind of condemned to test God, isn't it? It's not a good thing. But here God says, this is a good thing. You don't believe me? You don't believe that I'm just going to bless you if you're going to be generous with what I've given you? You don't believe that? Put me to the test, God says. See if I'm unfaithful. See if I don't love you. Put me to the test. Bring the whole tithe in. Bring it all in. And put me to the test, the Lord says, and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down blessing until there is need for no more. 
Wow. So we want to grab our stuff and we want to hang on to it with tight fingers and sticky little hands, don't we? And all the while, we're robbing God. But guess what? You're robbing yourself as much. You're stopping the flow of God's blessing from coming into your life and through your life. God says, put me to the test on this one, guys. Put me to the test and see what I do. Take your life, take your stuff, take everything and say, Lord, it's yours. I want to honor you first and foremost and see what I do, the Lord says. Wow. I didn't intend for this to be a message all about giving, but it's there in the text. It is. And it's not just about financial giving. Though that is the first area of application, there is other areas of application here. Finances, for sure. Are we faithful in that? Are we robbing the Lord with our finances? But are you robbing the Lord with your time? Are you unwilling to serve Him? Are you unwilling to give of yourself, of your own time, your own plans, your own agenda in order to serve the Lord and to serve others? Are you unwilling to give of the gifts that God has given you, the abilities that he has given you for his kingdom, for his purposes? Well, if you are, God says it's going to be cut off. The flow is going to be cut off. But if you simply turn and say, Lord, I want to honor you first in everything. I want to honor you with my time. I want to honor you with my talent. I want to honor you with my treasure. I want my life to be about you, number one. God says, look out. Here comes the blessing into your life. It's coming. And as long as it's not sticking to your fingers, I'll keep it flowing through you for my glory. This is a pretty big call. This is a pretty awesome blessing. And I just want to encourage you with something right now. If you don't trust the Lord in this, if you don't trust the Lord in this, put him to the test. Put him to the test. Make it your resolution to say, First and foremost, God, no matter what, I'm going to honor you with my finances, I'm going to honor you with my time, and I'm going to honor you with the talents that you've given me. I'm going to start doing that right away this month, right now, and Lord, I'm going to keep record to see how well you do at keeping up your promises. Put them to the test. Write it down in a prayer journal and see what the Lord does, and I bet you, you will be blown away at his faithfulness, at his goodness, about the blessing. And we're not just talking only material blessing here, not at all. We're talking spiritual blessing, the deep richness that the Lord will give you through just pouring out his grace and his mercy in your life. Well, that's the fifth dispute. Here's the sixth one right here. The sixth one comes a little bit closer to the end of the book. It comes in chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. And in this dispute, the people, they kind of hit the bottom of the barrel, okay? They just, you know, they hit the bottom of the barrel as far as accusing God, and the people just say, you know what, honestly, at the end of the day, it's just pointless to serve the Lord. It's just pointless to serve God. That's what they say. They say it's pointless to serve the Lord. Notice what they say. The Lord actually says this. He says, your words have been hard against me, Uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But to you, I say, or, or, or but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, here they're doing it again, 
and they call evildoers, and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So they're accusing God again of unfaithfulness. They're accusing God again of unholiness. But ultimately, they're saying, you know what? It's vain to serve the Lord. It's pointless to serve the Lord. Why are we doing all this temple stuff anyway? Why do we keep bringing our sacrifices and doing this and doing this? You know, God is just not faithful in his promises. It's pointless. Why don't we just go off and, you know, serve another God? Because um, he's just not doing anything. And this really signifies right here how far these people are from the Lord. Like I said, they've hit the bottom of the barrel at this point because they're looking at serving God as simply a means to their ends, to get what they want. They're not looking at, you know, no, I serve the Lord so that he will be honored and when he is honored, I get my joy in that. They're not looking at it that way. Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you with this resolution today. Um, By God's grace, let's resolve to always remember that it is a great blessing to be able to serve the Lord. It's not a chore. It's not a chore to serve Jesus Christ. If it is a chore, it's time to stop serving and it's time to start repenting, okay? It's time, if, if it feels always like a chore, I'm not saying... You know, sometimes you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're like, oh man, I'm tired today, okay? And it's a little bit harder. I'm not saying if you have one Sunday, you should just quit wherever you're serving, okay? But what I am saying is if it always feels like a chore, like drudgery to serve the Lord, it's time to take a step back, to step back and just say, Lord, rewire my heart, reorient my heart. Man, help me to reflect on how much you served me. Just take a second right now. Think about how much Jesus Christ has served you. Think about how much he served you. Nails in his hands and his feet on a sinner's cross so that you and me could have life. And and he calls us to serve him as a living sacrifice. And we think it's a chore It's not a chore. It's a joy. It's a joy to be able to serve the Lord. It's a good thing to be able to labor and grow tired and even weary at times from pouring ourselves out for the Lord and for His people. And if we don't think of it that way, I'm just going to say probably the best thing we can do is just take a little bit of a break, get ourselves refocused, reoriented on who the Lord is and what He has done to love us and serve us. And then when we're renewed and we're refreshed, then come back and pour our lives into it with a renewed zeal. The people accuse God. They say it's pointless to serve you. It's, it's, It's doing nothing for us. What's going on here? Their focus is completely off. Their focus is all about them. They're, they're self-focused, not God-focused. But this crazy thing happens right here in the book um, in chapter 3. It's actually really cool. You should check it out this afternoon. Um, you should read, just take some time to read all the way through Malachi and get the flow so much better than you'll get it from me secondhand. Um, but, but notice what happens in, in chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. The book shifts. There's all these disputes happening before that. And then in this moment, the, the people... The people of God hear Malachi's message. They hear this message that calls them to repentance and they get together. The people that fear the Lord, notice what it says. They get together. Uh, Then those who feared the Lord, verse 16, spoke with one another. They started talking, you know. 
this Malachi guy is maybe not all that nuts after all. Maybe he's got a point. Maybe we should listen up, okay? And they get together and they start to talk about what's being said. They, they have like a little, I don't know, a little, a little breakout time, a little small group time here, and they get together and they talk about what's being said. And the Lord, notice this, the Lord paid attention and he heard them. He paid attention to these people that gathered together and said, whew, things aren't as good as we think. Maybe it's not a problem with God. Maybe it's a problem with us. And they start to get together and talk about this. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before the Lord of, of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They, it says, God says this, they shall be mine. Isn't that sweet? God pays attention when his people have a soft heart. God pays attention to that. God's not oblivious to it. He pays attention when his people have a soft heart. And he says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And in the day, when, and in the day I will make them my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves them. Then once more, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. Listen, brothers and sisters, as we close, there's going to be times, there's going to be times this year when you want to give up, when I want to give up. There's going to be times like that. This passage tells us don't give up. This passage says don't give up. It's not pointless. It's not vain to serve the Lord. But be steadfast. Be steadfast in your service of the Lord. And in due time, the Lord will reward you, whether it's here on this earth or whether it's in glory with Him. But trust Him for it. Don't give up. Why not? Notice what it says here in chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who feared my name, but for you who fear my name, it says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ash under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Listen, there's incredible blessing. It is not vain to serve the Lord. It's not pointless to serve the Lord. God does not neglect justice. God is not unholy. God has all of these things. He's leading all of these things to the appropriate conclusion. And it is not vain to serve him even though the world might be against us. It's not vain. It's purposeful because the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. That's a picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of his return, of his establishing righteousness and equity, the way that things should be, setting all things right. That will happen. It's not questionable. It's a fact. You can look forward to it. You can bank on it. You can trust in it. And because of that, Today, you can have hope, even though you walk through difficult seasons, even though right now you walk through hardship, even though it sometimes looks like nothing will change. You can trust the Lord. You can trust the Lord enough to bank on the fact that He still loves you, that He has not left you, He has not forsaken you. He will never leave you or forsake you, but He calls you today by His great mercy to take a look at your own life to look at the areas of your life that are out of line with who he is and he calls you by his goodness and his grace and his kindness to turn, to repent, not to be hard-hearted like the people in the book of Malachi who said, how should we return? We've got nothing to repent over. 
We've all got stuff to repent over. So today, take a look at your own heart. And by the Lord's grace, whatever he puts his finger on, yield it to him. Get it under the blood of Jesus Christ right now and walk with him with renewed strength that he supplies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just admit our desperate need for you in every single way. God, we need you to even point into our lives, Lord, the areas where we are out of step with you. God, the areas where we are hard-hearted towards you. The areas, God, where we are neglecting you, where we are casting a shadow of doubt upon you. God, would you be so gracious to us, Lord, to point to all of those things? Would you be so gracious to us as to allow us to confess them and to repent over them, Lord, to turn away from any of our wickedness, Lord, to not grow in complacency, but to grow in humility and love for you. God, would you do that in our lives, Lord? Would you lead us to repentance through your great mercy, we pray? And would you restore, Lord, what is broken? And Lord, would we then at that point see your mercy and your blessing in our lives in a renewed way, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.